Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are going to talk to a, a member of the House of Representatives, Representative Ruben Gallego of the 7th District of Arizona, uh, a still relatively uh, new member of, of Congress. I think he was just elected to his third term. Uh, someone who is on the progressive side of the Democratic caucus has been someone who definitely has been one of those people who has been pushing for the last couple cycles for new leadership in the House, but he, he's not one of the signatories of that of that 16 uh, representative letter that everybody's talking about today, where this, these 16 members, uh, either incumbents or new members of the Democratic caucus who are saying that uh, no way, no how they're going to vote for Nancy Pelosi, not in the caucus, not on the speaker vote, which is of the entire House on, on, on the House floor. And that's been the big news out of uh, D.C. the last couple of days. So we're going to talk to Ruben about that. And we're also going to talk about Arizona. Because Arizona was a big, big story coming out of this election. Obviously, uh, Kirsten Cinema was a member of the House of Representatives, elected to the Senate, beat another House incumbent, Martha McSally. That was a big, big result. It helped stem uh, Democratic losses in uh, other Senate contests around the country. The state Democrats also got the Secretary of State office. You know, we don't normally think a lot about like, you know, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, like state attorney general. Obviously, each of those, you know, depending on the state, maybe lieutenant governor isn't isn't the most consequential position. But as we saw in a lot of states a couple weeks ago, in most states, the secretary of state runs the elections. And so that person is hugely consequential. And the Republican candidate in Arizona was you know, like a Brian Kemp type in uh, Georgia, you know, someone with very antediluvian kind of anti-voting rights uh, ideas. So in any case, people are really looking at Arizona now and thinking this may be a key battleground state in 2020. Now, the last few cycles, people have sort of talked about, you know, when the Democrats are doing well, oh, you know, they might even like turn Arizona blue. But obviously, at a certain point, you need to make kind of real strategic decisions about where you're going to focus your, you know, most of your uh, political firepower. So that's a, that is a big question. And so another topic that we are going to talk about is where is Arizona now in terms of is it a purple state? Can it become a blue state? Is this just sort of aspirational stuff that Democrats tell themselves every four years, or is this like real? And and we can look back at the examples over the last 10 to, 10 to 15 years of Virginia and Colorado, which were, Virginia was definitely a red state. Colorado has always had sort of, you know, there's always been sort of two Colorados. Um, but those have been battlegrounds. And at this point, they're pretty much blue states. Uh, you know, they both went for Hillary Clinton, uh, even in that in that, you know, tragic, weird, everything kind of getting strange uh, 2016 election. So we're going to talk about all those things. I'm here with my co-host, uh, David Tainer. So, so, David, we're two weeks out. Are we two weeks? We are two weeks out. It's Tuesday. Yep. We're two weeks out from from the election. We still have, I think, two or three yeah, house, house races. races yeah. there, there's that one in Utah, which it like on election night, it seemed like the Democrat had won. Hmm. 
And then it seemed like uh, Mia Love, the Republican incumbent, right. sort of pulled up. And then last night. She's like in the lead again, right? Well, no, he's back in the oh, lead Oh, he again. is? Oh, but okay. only as of like late <laughs> last night. Gotcha. Right. So it, it, it's, it's switched Ping-ponging back. Ping-ponging around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, in, this, in this cycle, it's sort of like we're used to, you know, if the Republican doesn't win it on election night, it's bad news for them because right. the Democrat is going to like come back. But, but obviously different states have different uh, geographical yeah. layouts. And, and then we have Mississippi, a runoff election on Tuesday. Yeah. So it's like not even, the voting isn't even over yet yeah. in that case. And, 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 and that is a case where the conventional wisdom going in was that uh, SB, the Democrat, had to had to get had to draw the sort of the crazier of the two Republicans as his opponent for the runoff to have any shot, right. and he didn't. But now she's, uh, uh, I believe, Cindy God, Hyde Smith. Hyde Smith. She's making a case for it now, though. Yeah, she's she's <laughs> she's she has come out strong for Mike Espy by saying these really kind of grotesque things. Yeah. I mean, this one comment that was. Uh, you know, saying, talking about being excited to be at a public hanging, which right. obviously um, in, in in Mississippi, public hanging isn't, you know, has a... Has it's a, not theoretical. Yeah, it yeah. has a pretty clear and, and horrific meaning. And then she was caught on camera saying, you know, she wants to make it harder for liberals to vote, which, you right. know, is, 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 is not as... as, as uh, not as horrible as... as kind of a lynching yeah. joke that that people I think rightly interpreted that other thing but still ain't great. So yeah. what are, what are we seeing is it what are, what have we seen like on TV today with with On with TV that? I mean I think the Trump's uh sort of out out there a wild statement on Saudi Arabia oh, has right. kind of been sort of the big news of today which yeah. is uh something like no fewer than eight exclamation points and um and a bunch seems- of kind of weird asides that almost sound like the way he speaks you know he mentioned He's doing his best to keep oil prices low for the world. He's so important for the world. It was kind of like offset. And, yeah, uh, there's and and all these kind of like uh, these things like in tweets where he, where at one point he says like, you know, the Saudis said he was an enemy of the state and part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. Like, but I'm not even talking about. So he kind of <laughs> slips in this like yeah. this like uh, you know these it's, these these very. Awful comments, right. and then says, "Oh, but ne- but you know, many people are saying." But you know, never it's mind. funny. Sometimes when you see a statement that is kind of under the auspices of the president of the United States, seems like okay, maybe someone in the staff wrote this, and and he just put his name on it. This is one of those rare instances where it really does sound like Trump. I mean, it has all the hall- hallmarks of his own his own hand in it. Yeah, no. It, well, that was that was a kind of funny thing. And if if you haven't heard about this yet, you should. Uh, just Google like Trump Saudi Arabia statement. It's sort of it came out, came out maybe an hour before we started recording this episode, maybe two hours. But it's it's all over the place, so you can read it. And what struck me is that it really sounds like him. But then I wonder, like, does Trump? You know, Trump just doesn't get out the laptop and like you know <laughs> right. open up Microsoft Word and like type Hit it out send, himself. Yeah. Right. So like. Maybe 
he dictated it to someone? Because, I mean, it really sounds yeah. like exactly the guy we know. It sounds right. like the tweets. It sounds like the, the interview transcripts. The, yeah, yeah, the interview transcripts. Yeah, totally. So that was, yeah, that was The weird. only other thing I would flag, just kind of things that are out there, is the Ivanka Trump personal email story, which right. broke last night in the Washington Post that she had sent hundreds of emails from her official account. Blah, blah, blah. We know this. Her personal account. Right, his personal right, account. Right, exactly. yeah, right, right. We know this happens. Obviously, in 2016, there was, I mean, wall-to-wall coverage of Hillary Clinton's use. It was Clinton's like the whole use. election. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Fox and Friends devoted like a 30-second segment to it four different times, which half half of which was a statement from Ivanka's lawyer pushing back on the report. So not getting a ton of play on uh, the president's of, favorite yeah, network. Not but. getting a lot of play on Fox. So, hey, you, you know, you, you remember I... I I, I had to kind of, uh, you know, drop the hammer down. Strong arm, on, yeah. On, yeah, on uh, Gray's Cold Brew, because we had a really old ad. Said it like a million times. So now we have, like, new ad copy from Grady's. So here's the thing. So it starts out with, and this is, you know, this is a lyric from a a, a, a favorite song of mine, although it's kind of like a problematic song if you when I when I hear it uh, in the last couple of years. But, but baby, it's cold outside. You know, old, old kind of jazz That's right. standard. And so Grady says, we hear it all the time. When the weather changes, many coffee lovers make the switch to, hot, to the hot stuff. But true cold brew aficionados, heroes we call the year-rounders, prefer their coffee ice no matter what the weather channel says. I think they're talking about you there. They may be. I mean, I, uh, hot coffee is like an offense to me. <laughs> Unfortunately, finding a good cup of cold brew in the winter can be tough and nearly impossible when you're looking for decaf. Grady's Cold Brew has you covered on both fronts. We offer our famous New Orleans-style brew 365 days a year in both regular and decaffeinated, conveniently shipped to your home or office so you don't have to go out in the snow looking for a cup of coffee. And shipping is always free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. So yeah, you know, if, if you're if you're legit and you, you just only drink ice, because I get that sometimes. Like right. you go into like a coffee shop and it's like snowing and you say, oh, yeah, I'll have, a, I'll have an iced coffee. And you get a look like like you're from Mars or something. It's, <laughs> it's like it's like it's like offensive. Um, okay, so we we we're we're gonna talk to uh, Representative Gallego, and again, very interesting conversation because Representative Gallego is still under forty, a, a kind of a rising uh, new member of the Democratic Party from a state that is becoming uh, more and more of a electoral target for the Democrats, and I've been really interested to talk to him again for a few, both to talk about kind of where the state of Arizona is, but also to kind of get in and, and, and get more of a sense of what's happening with this leadership race, which is kind of, kind of all we've seen talked about from in, 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 uh, on Capitol Hill for the last few days. So let's talk to Representative Ruben Gallego. All right, Congressman Gago, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Um, you're out in in uh, back in in your district, I assume. Yep, the purple state of Arizona now. Yeah, well, that's one that's one of the two big issues we want to talk about. So, so obviously, I think most people know the 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 sort of the top line out of Arizona that that um, 
Senator-elect Cinema won the race against uh, Congresswoman McSally. Uh, There's also the Secretary of State race that the Democrat uh, pulled out. Walk us through. Give us the give us the overview of what happened in the state in this in the midterm. Well, um, you know, we also won superintendent of public construction, and then we we uh, won another seat on the utility regulatory commission. Uh, we picked up four seats in the state house. Uh, we actually nearly picked off and tied the state senate. We missed it by a combined a hundred votes, really, um, a couple hundred votes, I should say. Uh, and we had massive uh, turnout. Um, you know, we had really the growing democratic uh, electorate that we've all been always been talking about actually come out. So you know, not just obviously our base voters. Uh, that we've had traditionally for many years, but we had, you know, suburban swing voters, specifically women, a lot of moderate Republican women that came over and crossed over and voted what seems to be straight down party line for Democrats. Um, and then we also had a surge of young Latino voters that actually came out and voted in a midterm, which we never imagined. Uh, for example, my district, uh, which is a uh, majority minority district, uh, very young district, uh, and and tends to be poor, or it would be classified as poor, I would say, um, ended up having uh, just less than 5% uh, 2016 uh, results, which is, again, unheard of. Uh, so we're very proud of what we've done here. Uh, we feel that this is a, should be a, a, you know, a message to the National Democratic Party and Progressive Movement that the Sun Belt uh, is a place to invest in, and there are dividends if you invest here. Look at what's happened with Nevada, and we think that we're the next. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be either or. We don't have to choose between, you know, uh, Arizona uh, and Wisconsin or right. Arizona and Pennsylvania. You can win with a combination of these states, and we have a lot of, uh, you know, opportunities in both states. So let me ask you this. I, I, was, I was talking with someone, uh, you know, a couple days after the election, and they were saying to me that they see Arizona now the way that, may, you know, maybe – Colorado and Virginia were five to ten years ago, so you know, kind of moving in that direction, but but not where they seem to be now, which is you know, I think most people now would say Colorado and Virginia are basically blue states; they're not even really purple states I- anymore. Now, a lot of that is, you know, this sort of year in, year out, building up kind of organizational and political infrastructure and so, so forth. And when you were on the podcast a few months ago, we were talking about this. So where do, where does that fit in? What, um, you know, when you say in, invest in, like, what does that mean in a concrete sense? In a concrete sense, it means you need to have a true partisan voter registration drive here in Arizona um, done by the Democratic Party or, or our C4 allies. Um, it also means we have to have true voter mobilization that cu- that comes around election time. So have the DNC and the presidential candidates actually invest in, in this state being a full swing state like you've seen in Colorado uh, and Nevada. We have the elements that does that that, that will make us uh, those types uh, of states. You know, we have a large urban area that is quickly. Uh, becoming uh, bluer, uh, which is the Maricopa County area, specifically with the cities of Phoenix and Tempe and a couple of small suburbs that are becoming intensely blue. Uh, we have um, a growing uh, population of Latinos that are starting to come of age and, and becoming more politically assertive. And we have uh, what you've seen in Virginia uh, and in um, uh, Denver, 
where you have a you know highly educated working class that's moving into the state that are starting to balance out to kind of retirement boomers that have been you know basically dominating politics here. Now, it is for, so for right now, we talk about you know the the, the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. You know these decisions need to get made. You know they don't get made in the middle of of, of twenty twenty. What kind of walk us through? So you know, in in a sense, the midterm result is was sort of like a proof of concept for what Correct. for what we're talking about. So if you look over, say, the next six months, what kind of things? What kind of uh, you know? putting their money you know, where their mouth is from the National Democratic Party, the party committees, the DNC. Right. What are the things we should be looking for to see what the, what the National Party is or is not doing? Well, it's going to be a combination of two things. At, at, at this level, we have to basically prep the groundwork or prep the battlefield, as, as we say in the Marine Corps. Um, and so that way, you know, when that occurs, or, or it's not something that, that is just organically happens when we go and find it and, and, and create the environment for it, um, they're ready to go. So what we would have to do here uh, in Arizona is, is essentially create the next, uh, you know, Arizona 2020 uh, group, uh, which there are some of us that are actually talking about that, uh, that is, you know, essentially getting the brain power together uh, and then going and meeting with the donors, with the funders, with the DNC, to essentially, you know, assure that they know that there is a group of, you know, activists, uh, organizations, and and local elected Democrats that are ready to work. That have co- that we have confidence in our skills and in the the people that we're going to put to to do this because these are Arizonans that we've known forever. Uh, and that you know what we need for them is to match our intensity with their investment. So uh, it's basically that there that there is a. A an organization, an infrastructure there that kind of absorb the money and do something with it, as opposed to just not you know I don't want to say, not frittering away, but can really right. make the most out. Of it. Let me ask you this, and this is I, I I think something that a lot of people around the country wonder about. When you describe that, why can't that be the state Democratic Party? Why does it have oh, to it be, can a, be? Okay. Oh, it can be absolutely. Um, and and just to be clear, like we, a lot of this, is, you know, everything that happened here in Arizona. Is because of the state Democratic Party. They they are uh, have been essential in keeping the ball rolling when you know the the National Democratic Party didn't believe us in, in us and other uh, you know uh, other political parties and or I'm sorry not other political but other uh, uh, presidential campaigns didn't invest in us. Right. What always always kept everything together here in Arizona was the state Democratic Party. Uh, you know through you know shoestring, you know just like gum and and shoestring sometimes, but we kept it together. And we're able to really. Uh, you know, continue fighting even in the darkest days of the 2010 when <laughs> it seemed like there was no Democrats left in Arizona. Right, right. But um, it can be. Uh, it's just it, either way, there needs to be the the, the reach out to it. A- any organization that is going to be doing any type of partisan voter registration is either going to have to work with the party, be inside the party, or be next to the party. There's no other way around that. But still, it sounds like it's it 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 remains important to have a sort of an era, whatever the name ends up being, kind of an Arizona 2020 thing that maybe, you know, maybe it works with the party, it's it's drawing people out of it, sure. but still a, a, an organization that kind of brings that all together. It just interests me from a sort of a organizational point of view that it, it the party's critical, but you need Absolutely. something more than that. 
Absolutely, and also just because it's harder to fund these. These are these are very expensive efforts, you know, to to yep. fund and do voter registration and do it correctly, and to turn on the vote. It's not turn on that vote. It's not as simple as you know putting out a campaign commercial. You right. know, need to have intense conversations at the door, and then intense conversations after you register that person to make sure they come out and vote. Now, I would imagine there's been a lot of conversation coming out of uh, the November six election, sort of looking looking forward to that kind of organizing effort. What are you hearing from the big national democratic stakeholders about how serious they are, you know, contesting Arizona as as a true swing state, not just kind of like a, you know, a maybe on the margins, but really kind of saying, all right, this is, this is one place we're going to make a stand. yeah, we have been, I've been very happy to hear about the excitement of Arizona. I think they understand that this is a state that is uh, prime for uh, good organizing. It is actually a state that's fairly easy geographically to organize. We have two major metropolitan areas, and then we have uh, some dense rural uh, areas of the of the state that has an opportunity, but it, it does not have like the, G, the gigantic geographical problems in terms of, for example, fully organizing Texas, right, or even or even like Pennsylvania, which has a lot of smaller but mid-sized cities spread throughout the state. We have we don't have that uh, here. So, um, you know, there's that. Number two, because it's a growing population, um, you're not you know basically trying to get to a dwindling uh, group of people to register to vote. It actually continues to grow, and it continues to grow into the future for us. So this is an investment that that will continue to you know bear fruit. So those are the elements, I think, that really excites uh, people. And lastly, um, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, people just aren't pointing out, but I think it's really important, the gimmicks that this president tried uh, to distract and to entice or to not, to entice his base to come out did not work in Arizona. Um, the, you know, migrant uh, caravan scare uh, and all his, you know, actions trying to buffer up his uh, his border wall, all that game that is, you know, the president's strongest game to get his base did not work here in Arizona, um, and largely for many reasons. But number one, because it's a blowback. Right. The reason Martha McSally lost, besides Kirsten Sinema being a really great candidate, is because you, as soon as the president left, people were reminded what was who, what was at stake. Right. And Latino voters and young voters started voting uh, as soon as the president took off, and it was probably one of the dumbest political decisions that anyone's ever done in Arizona to invite somebody like the president Trump. Uh, that close uh, to an election. And we have 30 days of voting here in Arizona. So he essentially turned, uh, I'd say, the tide for, for the Democrats by being here and just, you know, being interesting. Up. Interesting. Now, it's funny. I'm curious what you were hearing at the time because, and, you know, obviously we all hear all sorts of conflicting information in the, in the, in the, in the final days before uh, an election day, not, you know, as you say, voting starts long before election day but what i was at least hearing from some you know with 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 great regret i i heard some operatives saying you know we don't think this is getting this being trump's you know caravan fear-mongering we don't think it's getting a lot of traction in the midwest but we're worried it's it's it is getting traction like in arizona and texas it, were you hearing something similar and it didn't turn out that way or that was just no, in no, you we, know fog I, we, of war kind of thing yeah i mean we we 
I think you have to understand, like, for those that live in these border states, we actually understand how the border operates, and we are not uh, naive to think that somehow thousands of, of migrants are going to suddenly just cross the border together in, right. in mass. Right, right. Uh, and, and so, like, when you use that to try to scare people in Arizona, at least for the Arizonans that have lived here for a while, not, not the, the transplants, we know that that's just... A, False, like it's a lie. We we know that's how this works. And those that live in, in same with those that live in Texas, um, they understand whether the Democrats, Republicans, white, Anglo, Latino, whatever, uh, they understand really how border and the border works. We cross the border all the time to go eat, shop, vacation uh, in Mexico. So you know it is not this um, uh, scary idea uh, because we actually can place you know where the border is and how the border looks versus what well, I think the did have an effect was actually in the Midwest. And I think in right. the Midwest it did have an effect because they have zero concept. Many of the voters there have zero concept what the actual border crossing looks like, what the border patrol is like. Uh, I mean, here you get within 100 miles of the border and you're getting stopped randomly by U.S. Border Patrol. Right, that is the right. life that people in the Southwest are used to. So this idea that like thousands of migrants are just going to quote-unquote invade this country uh, is ridiculous to Arizonans, no matter of what uh, political persuasion. Got it, got it. Yeah, it was, you know, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't grow up that close to the border. I grew up in Southern California. And I, I so, you know, some distance, but not too far. We're kind of right. like, you know, the, the U.S.-Mexico border is something, you know, relatively close. And I was struck when all that was happening, like, y- you would think from what Trump was saying that the border is just one long, just, you know, kind of line on the ground and people just right. walk home, walk over right. <laughs> as though there's no border patrol or, you know, nothing, you know, uh, anything. Anyway, so here's the other question that, that is very live for Democrats right now. Um, it's it's kind of seems to be the story out of Washington. Mm-hmm. Y- you have this this group of 16 uh, representatives or representatives elect who signed this letter Uh as I, you know, as, as I'm interpreting, basically saying, you know, both in the caucus vote and on the floor, they're not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi. And that's created this this, uh, you know, seemingly she 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 won't have the votes on the floor. Now, I know that um, in our previous conversation, you are. Well, let me let me back up a little. Most sure. I think most of the people on that list are either people without a kind of a clear ideological colorization, you know, coloring or people on the right of the of of the democratic caucus um you're on the other side but you are also someone who has been pretty open that you think it's time for a sort of a, a generational turnover of 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 leadership in in the house caucus now your name was not on that uh letter but i know that there there's at least as much uh, desire for change in the leadership and the left of the caucus as the right of the caucus. So, first of all, wh- why is your name why is your name not on that letter? Well, because I'm still trying to make a decision, and um, you know, it, doing blocking a speaker on the House floor is an extraordinary measure, and I'm not going to rush to something like that without seriously thinking about the repercussions, both to the Democratic Party, to my caucus, and to the progressive movement uh, in general. Um, and look, and I, I've, I've voted for uh, Leader Pelosi before, and I've voted against Leader Pelosi. Uh, I have voted against Leader Pelosi because I think that there are a lot of progressive movements that uh, I think should be championed and should be moving faster. Uh, and I voted with her uh, before because I thought she was the right person uh, at uh, the right time. You know, I think 
you know, for me, uh, right now, what I want in the next speaker, whether it is um, uh, Leader Pelosi or if it's someone new that comes up, they have to be three things. They need to be a great negotiator, they need to be a great strategist, and a great communicator. We need to be able to negotiate uh, with our Republican colleagues, even among ourselves, uh, especially when we have to, you know, to deal with Trump for a couple more years. We need a strategist that actually knows uh, how uh, you know, to work the legislative process to get us ready for 2020, so we make sure that we take back the White House, the Senate, and, the, um, uh, and keep the House. And you know, the, re- the true resistance you know, uh, from, and the message from the Democratic Party will be the next speaker, because we don't have control of the Senate and we don't have uh, the White House. You know, and and if you've kind of been following what I've I've been doing, you know, while I've always been trying to, you know, democratize the power structure of leadership. I know this is getting a little nerdy. No, no, uh, no. We're, of, we're we're we like nerdy. We're, we're nerding it up here. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, and I think that you, what we're seeing right now, like you've already kind of seen a democratization in terms of of de- of of you know progressive leaders. You know, this is why you have. So many younger members on TV, and you know, really leading the rallying cry for progressive movement, but it, that has never really shown itself in the actual Democratic caucus. So last year, or two years ago, um, you know, part of uh, what I thought to, to, to essentially hold leadership accountable and ourselves accountable, we did some some reforms. You know, for example, the D trip right now is no longer just a hand appointed person of uh, you know the speaker or the leader, um, and. DTRIP is the Democratic uh, Campaign Committee, which is essentially the ben, ben Ray Lujan's job, who uh, was able to almost pick up, I think, 40 seats. That position now has its own powers, it has its own um, uh, agency, versus in the past, it was just an, an, a political arm of, of the leader or the Speaker of the House. There's other areas where I thought we should have done better and could have done better in terms of promoting younger, more progressive people into leadership roles. Uh, and that did not occur. Uh, I think that's one of the things that I'll probably be talking to my uh, whoever my speaker is going to be. That there needs to be a way uh, again that there is a, a, a pathway uh, for younger people to. So, actually get so let me leadership. let me let me ask you on that yeah. point for 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 people who who you know have not lived and worked on on Capitol Hill. You know, we see that there's the three big posts at the top. Um, when when you're when it's the majority speaker, the uh, leader, and 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 the whip, for so l- hypothetically, let's say you know uh, Nancy Pelosi pulls this together, she's the next speaker. What does it mean, and how does it work for assuming? Th- and that's not necessarily something we can assume. Assuming those three people are there, what are the right. things that make it possible for younger and or more progressive members of the caucus to get into leadership roles to kind of, you know, gain sure. leadership experience so they're a future speaker? Well, I think number one, you having to uh, or creating select committees for specific uh, subject areas uh, or issues. Uh, you know, if you're talking about, you know, healthcare. Uh, you know, creating uh, the position for, you know, essentially there to be a, a, a congressional health care czar. So a young person who is actually there talking about, you know, what health care means. And when I mean young, I'm not talking like 18, obviously. I'm talking about a newer member who is, you know, uh, uh, wants to stay in the House and wants to uh, pick up uh, responsibility and experience. Uh, same with either issues of like, you know, work, climate change, um, LGBT issues. There's so many ways that you could do this, but it, the it has to actually be, uh, you know, involved. It has to at least involve 
one of these members that is not, I would say, is you know, in the top three or even the top five. Right. Uh, and, and 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 there's and then also just like making sure that they're available for the for the media for the press. So you know, so like we could you know have a diverse voice that represents the Democratic Party because essentially that's how we want. You know, it's like right. it was a combination. You know, the story I think is going to be uh, written so many times about how it was, you know, suburban women that came out and voted. Uh, uh, you know the the Republicans out, but what they're you know what needs to be looked at is true that it was really a combination. It was you know black women, black voters, you know overwhelmingly coming out and vote with an unheard of numbers, uh, and then you have you know Latino voters you know coming out uh, out of nowhere. In addition to yes, uh, some women, white women that that swung over our way, uh, and so the when we go and speak as a caucus, I think that needs to be represented also. And and so basically those people in, in sort of uh, select committees or sort of, you know, ad hoc positions, those people would have like some of the attributes of being a chair of a committee, maybe not technically all the same, but right. hold hearings and have a kind of a, a portfolio. And so uh, they have some res- they have some responsibility. And also when they go on TV, it's not just like, oh, I'm some backbench you know, exactly. rep and so, okay. On the key about Latino voters, I think one of the key things that people always talk about in in Texas, Arizona, really kind of uh, uh, in that arc of the Southwest, is that in in those states, obviously Latino voters are a you know the the a, a key part, if not the base, of the Democratic Party. But there have been. Um, chronic turnout issues that, that, you know, and that was one, like in the, in the, uh, in the Texas Senate race, that was, that was a kind of a key question was, uh, Beto O'Rourke going to get, uh, you know, elevated, uh, Hispanic Latino turnout. What happened in Arizona and in the Southwest there was, was there a shift or just give us a sense of, of what, how that changed if it did? Well, it's a combination of a couple of things. Number one, you know, you have a polarizing figure that you know easily. Uh, you can you can easily distinctly, I should say, uh, separate from um, you know regular politics. You know, I think the Democratic Party has had a problem getting out Latino votes, be, not just because of lack of investment, but because uh, outside of immigration, there is not much that the Democratic Party has been offering to Latino community. It is a working class community. It is an aspirational community. We want to send our kids to college. We want, uh, you know, we want to be able to have a good, uh, well, you know, life, work hard, play by the rules, buy a house. There was nothing really the Democratic Party was offering that was that much different from Republicans, except for obviously the scare of immigration. Now you have Trump, who basically. You know, doesn't even you know flirt with you know his uh, xenophobia towards the community, and he just is outwardly uh, overt about it. Um, and so that is one. Number two, I think you're you're. It's an issue of timing too, uh, and and how old uh, the population uh, is in terms of Latino uh, voters uh, in the Southwest and in and in uh, Arizona. The difference between you know 2000, uh, for example, 2012. And 2018 seems only six years, but you know if you look at the national trends, I think if I remember correctly, last year it was uh, every month um, 50,000 Latinos turn 18. Mm. So, and that community of voters is now more engaged and more networked and more connected because of social media uh, and just because of, of, of the environment altogether, where things have gotten so politicized uh, all the time. So everything being politicized, 
you know, the president always being on the campaign trail, always, you know, hammering against, you know, essentially this community. Uh, and then you couple that with some uh, opportunities in terms of truly aspirational uh, candidates. And, they, and that's like the perfect cocktail to basically pulling off, you know, uh, some upsets. And right. to give credit to Beto, he got pretty close. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, if if this is a different state, I think Beto does pull it off. Texas is a massive state, uh, but um, I think if I was a Republican, I would be very worried. Uh, the fact that the shift happened, it happened so quickly, uh, and it's it, it it's a, a testament. That the state has not has nothing to do with the politics of the demographics. It has to do with whether you can mobilize them or not. Right. Okay. So let me. I want to shift back to the to the to the leadership question in 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 the Democratic caucus. Um, there and you know you hit on a key point, and this is something that I don't think has been enough in in a lot of the press coverage that there's a caucus vote where all the Democrats get together and choose their leader and that person is put forward on the House. And then there's what people do on the House floor and that Mm -hmm. these 16 are basically saying, I don't care what the caucus says, I'm not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi no matter what. Now, there's a lot of and I'm sure you've seen this. There's there's a. A lot of backlash right now. Um, I don't think it's just on social media, but you can see it on social media. Seth Moulton had uh, had a, a town hall last night that was that was uh, kind of rambunctious, f- focused on this. A lot of people are looking at this and saying, you know, there's going to be 230 plus Democrats. This is 16 members of the caucus who are basically saying we don't care what everybody votes for in the caucus. We're not going to let this happen. Why shouldn't, uh, you know, Democrats who who raised a lot of money and canvassed and voted and did all this stuff, what do you say to people to people like that who were furious at the at this at these 16? And I'm not saying like it's up to you to defend them, but, you know, (laughs) but but I I mean, in this sense, as someone who thinks that that the leadership, you know, that the party that the caucus should get new leadership. Right. How do you explain to them if you if 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 you care to? What's motivating this these sixteen, or wait, or, or why they might have a point, even if you know you're not aligned with them? Well, I mean, to be with it is you know an extraordinary measure to deny whoever wins the caucus vote um, a, a floor vote uh, or the, the the vote in general, um, and so that is you have to take your time and actually think about the repercussions of that. I know the the many of the leaders uh, of uh, this movement. I've worked with them in the past, and I, I was with them in uh, uh, being against uh, leader Pelosi uh, last time. They are true blue Democrats. They do care, you know, greatly about the Democratic Party. They worry about the direction uh, of the Democratic Party. They worry about the future of the Democratic Party uh, and the transition that they believe needs to happen. Uh, and so. You know, I you know while it seems very frustrating, these are I think internal caucus disagreements that are happening right now. But you know, those Democrats uh, you know are really doing what they think is the best uh, in the heart for in their hearts for the caucus, for the party, and and for this country in general. Uh, and I would hope people would would uh, understand that. And there's you know a way I think for all of us to have civil discussions among ourselves uh, about. You know how uh, and what this caucus should be doing, uh, but certainly, uh, you know, any attempt to say that they are less than uh, you know good uh, members of good good Democratic members in standing, I think, is is very uh, short-sighted. And 
and unacceptable. Uh, I think we do need to have the conversation, and this is why I, I haven't waited in one way or the other. You know, what does it mean for a caucus uh, to not support someone uh, you know, on the floor? Uh, and uh, what does that mean long-term? You know, does that create uh, a scenario where we can have you know, high-level brinksmanship with, you know, within our caucus all the time right. uh, with a small, small amount of members? Uh, so this is the things that I'm thinking about, and I think everyone should be considering that. And, look, we have some time uh, before we get there. There is no urgency, in my opinion. We have uh, our first caucus election. It's going to be November 28th, and after that, um, you know, we have the floor vote uh, uh, at the beginning of the year. So uh, I think this is the time we should all take to reflect and actually talk to each other and figure this out. So two last questions. In general, I think it's fair to say that that list of 16, again, were people who were you know, maybe don't have a kind of a really clear ideological bent pu- publicly mm-hmm. or people on the right of the caucus. By and large, th- the people who I think are, you know, where you are saying it's time for some leadership changes, those people didn't sign on. Why do you, to the extent that's the case, you know, you can speak for yourself, but why Why is it that, that it's more people to the center and right of the caucus who are taking this stand and less people on the, on the, on the left of the caucus? Well, because I think you know, uh, and 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 I don't, you know, I don't think there's that much uh, significance in terms of our political uh, bent uh, between us and many of these people. I think it's like maybe one or two issues, but mm-hmm. um, you know, for many of us on the left that want to see change, the most important thing is that we're changing into a more progressive uh, agenda, an aggressive agenda. Uh, so we don't necessarily want to backslide just to get quote unquote new leadership if our agenda is going to also backslide with it. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, unless there is a progressive, uh, candidate that steps up, I don't believe you're going to see many, uh, of, you know, of, you're not going to see many members of Congress that are left of center, uh, uh, you know, rushing to replace, uh, leader Pelosi, uh, because again, uh, we've done a lot of great progress, uh, in, you know, for liberals in the House. Uh, we've done amazing work in terms of, I think, moving the uh, conversation forward. Uh, but we certainly, you know, don't want to start black backsliding by just you know, having a knee-jerk reaction. So, so key there being, you, you, as you said, you want more progressive and aggressive leadership. And right. probably there's someone who can be more aggressive and progressive than Nancy Pelosi. But if it's going to be someone who's to her right, there's no point, basically. I think that's what a lot of them, a lot of people are making calculations uh, uh, about how they're voting, right, uh, or how they're going to vote. So, l- la- last question: there, There's a, a lot of people point out that there's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what where where we'd put the number, but there are a lot of new members of the caucus who came from, you know, historically Republican districts, or at least ones that are going to be a real fight to hold on to in 2020. And a lot of those people pledge, like, I'm not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi, they're, and so they're kind of out there exposed. And then you've right. got other people on this list who are come from like safe democratic districts. And, and so again, I think another aspect of the, of, to the extent there's a backlash is like, you know, let, let, uh, you know, let some of these n- new people get a pass, but don't take their ticket basically. And, and, you know, force them to kind of walk the plank and maybe lose their seats in, in, in two years. What, how do you respond to that? Is that a, is that a fair criticism? Well, I think, look, every member has to do what is best for them and their district. And, and to Lita Pelosi's credit, she's also said the same thing. 
Um, and she said that during the campaign, where when reporters pointed out that you know this person's pledged to uh, you know to vote against you, and the one thing she said, you know, you know what, just win first, and then we could t- take care of everything. So, and the vice versa. I think it's difficult for any, for at least for me, to tell any other member, um, you know, what their own politics should be or what the districts, what the district politics are. Um, you know, I, I think that you know the idea that somehow they're cornering. Uh, these freshmen, um, it's not as simple as that. I think a lot of these freshmen are going to take their own um, calculations uh, and, and figure out what the best way uh, for them to move forward. It, I also you know, think that this is also a insider's game uh, on steroids, uh, and it is becoming a little more front and center because of like, the intrigue that just occurs around uh, D.C., and, you know, a lot of voters really at the end of the day actually don't care either way. Right. Um, and this is just, you know, political pundits and, uh, you know, consultants and politicians that are all just kind of jockeying around each other. When, in fact, you know, whether we keep Leader Pelosi or bring somebody new, if we improve, if that person comes in the next two years and improves the lives of Americans and passes legislation that is, you know, aspirational and inspirational, uh, I think you're going to, you know, uh, not have any blowback, uh, you know, when it comes to who you vote for, for leadership. Uh, it's when the process takes over the policy uh, that I think people really, you know, start voting against Democrats. Right. Okay. So, last question, or kind of last, to kind of give you last, uh, the last, last question. Yeah. Last, 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 question. last question. This is the fi- <laughs> this is the final question. Here's this: okay. a lot of a lot of people. Ever since Trump came into office, a lot of people were waiting for this midterm, and they were they were organizing, they were giving money, yep. they were you know, they were uh, uh, you know advocating on Twitter and doing all these different kind of things. And now the midterm's done. I mean, there's a few elections still still going out there, but yep. it's done. And there, I think, for a lot of people, a sense of like. Well, oh, okay. I guess you know. Is there more for me to do, or or do I just have to wait yes, for twenty twenty? So, that, so that's the question. So so let's end on that. For someone who has spent the last two years p- putting everything into this, you know, ordinary voters, uh, small donor givers, all you know, yes, those people. Yep. What do they do now? Uh, you have Thanksgiving with your family. Okay. Uh, you don't talk about politics for the first time in two years. Okay, got it. Uh, and then uh, you get back uh, to ordinary life, and you get ready for 2020. You find your candidate of choice in terms of flipping a seat in Congress or uh, bringing in a new senator or finding uh, a new president, and you start uh, educating yourself about them and start moving more and more in that direction because you know this was the first battle, uh, I would say, and we won it. And now 2020 is really going to be uh, you know, essential uh, in terms of, you know, winning the, the war of ideas. Got it. All right. Congressman Ruben Gallego, uh, 7th District of Arizona. Uh, thanks so much for, for uh, joining us and uh, have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, very interesting. Well, he you know kind of wrapped me a little there with 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 too many last questions, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to get get you people as as much information uh, as we as we can out of the congressman. That's right. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and, me and too. Kind of. There have been there have been signs recently. I our own Cam Joseph wrote a piece a couple weeks ago about how 
like Arizona and Wisconsin are kind of the new like Florida and, you know, yeah. like just sort of keying in on different swing states than we're traditionally yep. kind of used to. Yep. Yep. No, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the, you could tell at one point in our conversation, there's always this, there's always this issue of, of people don't want to, people are cautious about making it either or. They don't want to say like, well, you're doing this, and but you forgot about this state or my region or something like this. Still, there, there's, there, inevitably, you, you have to, there, you know, resources are not infinite. And I do think there's a lot of Democrats coming out of the, the 2018 election who really, you know, because the whole thing has sort of been in the last, almost going on 20 years now, basically, can you get Ohio and Florida and those right. two as the big ones? And and assuming you do, then you kind of, you know, you, you, you get the other, what we had thought were bluer uh, uh, Midwestern states, but those are the two. And now I, I think people are... Uh, it was a tough election for Democrats in, in Ohio. Yeah. Um, and there's really, I think, questions about whether, you know, to the extent you have limited resources, maybe it makes more sense to be uh, to be doubling down on on uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, obviously, you, you, you presumably you'll you'll do well in Virginia and Colorado and maybe Arizona is is part of the equation. Uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. Have a great Thanksgiving. We probably won't talk to you again uh, before Thanksgiving. So hope you have a great time with family. As, as Representative Gallego said, probably makes sense not to, not, to, uh, not to talk politics at the Thanksgiving table, especially with like your Trump or uncle. <laughs> so, probably good advice. Yeah, yeah, probably good advice. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye.